trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Glad you could join me today. And if you're just uh, tuning in for the first time, you are probably wondering, okay, what exactly am I in for? So uh, in interest of full disclosure, let me confess, my name is Brian. I'm a wrong thinker. Now that means that I challenge the prevailing narratives, especially the official narratives. When some expert, I'm putting that in air quotes, when some expert tells me, hey, this is uh, the sun is shining right now, I have to go outside and look for myself. I'm not going to take them at their word. And that's uh, because a long experience, as in nearly 40 years of working within the media, has shown me that uh, there's a lot of disinformation, misinformation, and just outright propaganda out there designed not so much to, to steer us into a giant lie as to simply keep us from seeing the truth. So my job as, uh, as a commentator is uh, to, to try to encourage people like you and myself to think as clearly and independently as possible. And sometimes that means we're going to have to break with polite society in order to be able to see the truth, speak the truth, and ultimately live the truth. Now that makes me a radical in some people's eyes. And I'll confess, when I'm done with the show today, one of the first things I'm going to do is I'm going to walk into my kitchen and I'm going to cook up a Denver omelet on a gas stove using eggs that I've gathered from my own chickens. I know that kind of sounds like a flex, right? Yeah, I'm in a high tax bracket. <laughs> How about you? But uh, I believe in, in self-reliance. I believe in, in being ungovernable to the extent that legitimate government has stopped. So let me put that another way. I think there is a legitimate function of government. It is to protect our rights, our God-given rights. It's to keep us free and to uh, see that justice, actual justice, what is fair and right, prevails. But we don't have a lot of uh, proper government these days. And so in the, uh, in the spirit of uh, Captain Malcolm Reynolds from Firefly, wherever possible, wherever there is uh, irrational and unreasonable authority being exercised, I aim to misbehave. I'm not saying that you have to do exactly the same, but once you start to, to grasp how important that personal liberty is, how important that freedom of conscience is, you'll understand why self-reliance and, uh, and being a wrong thinker is more than just, you know, some kind of political statement. This is, this is a way of life. And, and if I can be very frank, it is the happiest and most productive way of life that I have known. Now, that is not to say that it's the easiest. Because there are times where you have to part with, with polite society. There's times when you have to be willing to, uh, to be hated for what you believe. And that's tough for most of us. We don't like to, you know, we don't like to suffer. But as far as I'm concerned, this is the test of how you can tell whether or not to take a person seriously. And that is you simply observe, is this individual willing to suffer for his or her beliefs or not? And anyone who isn't willing to suffer their beliefs, in my opinion, really doesn't have beliefs that are worth much to them. Does that make sense? I'm not talking about, you know, you need to be out there getting yourself thrown in jail in order to show, you know, how much you believe. But I'll say this, the people who have 
stood up even at the risk of being arrested or being actually arrested, hauled off, tried on trumped-up charges, hated by the public, you know, reviled by the press. I take those people more seriously than the ones who just simply parrot whatever the party line is and then look around to make sure that everybody's nodding in agreement with them. One of those people has conviction. The other is, is nothing more than a sheep trying to stay blended in with the crowd. It's because people who've paid a price in order to live up to what they believe are undergoing the kind of suffering that actually changes the world for the better. I like how Paul Rosenberg put it. He says, if you're not willing to suffer at some level, anybody with a pin and a threat will own you. Because all they have to do is, you know, threaten to make you uncomfortable. Oh, well, okay, I'll get right back in line and I, I won't make any waves. So the bottom line is, if you want to create positive change, if you want to be a good person who has impact on the world, you can't go out of your way to avoid suffering. Okay, you don't have to be a masochist and go out looking for it, but you have to understand it's part of the price of living up to your convictions. So if you fear losing money more than gaining liberty, you're not going to get liberty. If you're not willing to be hated for the truth, you will not encounter much truth either. It all comes down to how badly you want something, what kind of price you're willing to pay in order to have it. If you want something badly enough, we find a way to make it happen. That's how I feel about personal liberty. I want it badly enough, I'm willing to suffer for it. I'm willing to give up some conveniences. I was willing to not wear the mask. I was willing to not take the jab, knowing full well that, uh, that there was massive pressure being brought to bear to, to bring my compliance. And, and it did. It brought negative attention. It brought discovery. It brought discord even in my own home. And that sucked. But I also knew what my conscience was telling me. And my commitment to my conscience was stronger than my desire to avoid the discomfort. And if we're so shallow that an insult at a public meeting or somebody threatening to take away your job or a contract from you would cause you to slink away in shame, well, the truth is you're really not ready to change the world. So you got to be willing to put the truth above whatever the world's rulers think and to be willing to do the right thing no matter what the world is saying. And I know it sounds counterintuitive, but the crazy thing about it is when you do that, you set yourself free in the process. It's a marvelous feeling. And I suspect you probably experienced this at some level or you wouldn't even still be listening to me. You'd be like, oh, this guy's nuts. I'm out of here. But if you understand what I'm getting at, you've probably been through it yourself. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome, brother or sister. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have you as a fellow traveler. Let's get down to business here. You know, there seems to be growing darkness in just about any direction that we turn right now. And, and part of this is, is related to our consumption of media. And I'm going to just advocate for don't consume more media than you absolutely have to. In fact, if you really want to keep a healthier outlook on the world, one of the things that you've got to be willing to do from time to time is take a media fast. If not, wean yourself away from most mass media. Now, that's hard to do. And, and I, I confess, I'm not good at practicing this. In part, here's my pitiful justification, because what I do 
you know, being a commentator requires that I, I delve into many different subjects, try to stay up on current events, release those that I think are worth note, note, noting and, uh, and, you know, opining on. But if you marinate in this negativity that, that is, is really, it's the chief product of what our media sources put out, fear, anger, hatred. Those are things that get people to click on stories. Those are things that hold people spellbound. Oh, tell me more. They're playing to our basest emotions. And when we consume it on a regular basis, we become dependent on that uh, daily fear supplement or that daily dread supplement, whatever it may be. So it becomes hard sometimes to see the goodness. I've got a great article here from uh, Larry Alton that describes why if there was ever a time to remember why families are more important than ever, this is it. So if you need to recalibrate, you know, your vision, kind of shake off the darkness a bit, here's something to consider. Larry Alton points out that family values are less popular than they used to be, with fractured families all over the country dropping birth rates, and there's no longer a dominant family form in the United States, which he says isn't necessarily a bad thing by itself, But it is indicative of a culture where families are becoming less important and less valued. But, he says, despite this, to thrive in today's society, families and family values are more important than ever. And there are lots of reasons why. He starts with financial and resource support, noting that we live in economically uncertain and challenging times, thanks in part to decades of reckless government spending and poorly conceived actions on the part of central banks. Inflation is at an all-time high. Asset values are completely irrational. Most people living in the country wouldn't be able to handle even a relatively minor emergency expense. So what does that mean for the average person? Well, the short answer is financial instability. Even if you have a good job, you may not be able to afford a home of your own. Or you may struggle to buy groceries. You may not be able to cover most of your emergency expenses. Now, his point is there's not much we can do immediately to alleviate the economic conditions in this country, but... With stronger families, those economic conditions become less negatively impactful. As a parent, you can allow your child to live at home past the age of adulthood. As a child, you can help your parents make ends meet if necessary. Together, you can reduce your collective expenses and support each other in ways that render other services unnecessary. Oh, I know. Moving back in with your parents, living in your mom's basement. I know. it's, it's, It's looked down on, and yet... Given the economic uncertainty of our time, if you have the option of turning to family, why not? Seems to me that may be the better shelter in the storm. Almost like it was designed that way. Huh. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to mention my sponsors briefly. You can find out more about them at my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. They include monticellocollege.org, lifesavingfood.com, and also borelli.com. I'm going to be adding a new sponsor coming up here very soon. I'll, I'll be telling you more about that shortly. But I want to get back to this article by Larry Alton about why families are more important than ever. Now, he talked about how in times of financial instability, financial and resource support can be found within the family. Now, I know that also, well, but there's also moochers. That is also a possibility, yes. 
But if we nurture those healthy family, uh, you know, relationships, it can be a wonderful shelter in time of need. Also, medical and home care support. Larry Alton says, in line with this, families serve as a form of medical and home care support when necessary. Now, he says, it doesn't matter whether you're a social democrat, a libertarian, a neoconservative, or a reasonable centrist. We can unanimously agree that our medical system right now is less than ideal. A combination of excessive government regulations and private profit-driven crony capitalist medical systems has pushed prices higher and made health care less accessible. So thankfully, it's easier to provide home care as an individual outside of your current medical system. And he says it should come intuitively to you to support your family when they need you the most. Instead of tapping into insufficient health insurance policies or risking bankruptcy to get the care you need, you can lean on some of your family members to provide at least some of your essential care. Obviously, if you don't have medical training or certifications, there are some medical services you're not going to be able to provide. But... Even without any medical training, you can provide companionship and optimizations designed to increase independence. All right, my wife and I are at a stage of life where our parents are aging. And we, you know, we take very seriously that to part of our duty. They raised us, you know, when we were helpless and unable to provide for ourselves or to care for ourselves. And it is our duty to look after them as they reach those uh, stages of life where, you know, taking care of themselves becomes harder, where they need some assistance. I'm not talking about, yep, you know, we got to go and give them sponge baths every day, but just simply help around the house, lifting heavy objects, carrying things up and down the stairs, you know, companionship, really. That's, that's a huge part of it as well. And I know some people are like, look, man, there's assisted living places we can put them. You can put them, have, you know, in-home nurses come and care for them. That's true. But you have to stop and wonder, at least I hope you would stop and wonder at some level, why do we have families in the first place, if not to look out for each other? This used to be the norm. It used to be the norm. Well, granddad is is really getting up there in age. He's actually, you know, approaching end of life. You didn't go put him in some long-term care facility and let them take care of him and turn him so he wouldn't get bed sores, you know. He came home to die at home with his family, providing care, providing whatever he needed, and, you know, sometimes the death actually took place at home. And I know we look at that as a horrible thing. Oh, my gosh, I could never live in a house where somebody had died. But I think people had a healthy understanding of of what life was and how that circle of life plays out when that was part of the experience of family. We cared for right up to the point of death our loved ones, you know, again, this is, you know, within, within our medical capability. And, you know, that's, and it, it took place at home. We didn't uh, outsource everything. Something tells me there's a reason why families were stronger at that time. And part of it was because of that responsibility to look out for each other. Here's another thing that I know people maybe wouldn't consider right away. Why is the family another great idea? Anti-propaganda. In today's society, everyone is a propagandist. Your favorite politicians, journalists, teachers, even celebrities are uninterested in truth and instead are interested in pushing a specific agenda, whatever that agenda happens to be. Every news organization out there has a specific slant they consistently maintained, pushing out independent-minded journalists in favor of people willing to submit to whatever narrative is currently popular amongst readers. State-funded schools, unsurprisingly, favor statist policies. 
So regardless of whether your children are in public schools, private schools, or in homeschooling, you have the power to dispel some of this propaganda. You can spend some time teaching your kids about values and philosophies and why they're important to you. You can help point out some of the flaws and shortcomings in the lessons they've learned elsewhere. But most importantly, you can spend time teaching them the power of critical thinking so they can reliably assess the accuracy and veracity of the information they encounter in the future. As a parent, there's nothing that makes me prouder than hearing my kids share something with me where they said, you know, I heard this or I saw this article the other day. Here's why I think this uh, was misleading. And it's not that, you know, I'm trying to train them to go out there and be media watchdogs. I'm just trying, trying to, I want to know that I taught them that you don't have to take everything at face value. Now, sadly, that means they won't take everything I tell them at face value. But I'd rather have kids who question me than those who just mindlessly click their heels and obey. The next area that Larry Alton talks about is mental health. People with strong family bonds tend to demonstrate better mental health outcomes, which is indispensable in our era of mental distress. Millions of people, perhaps more than ever before, are actively suffering from disorders related to anxiety, depression, and excessive stress. Without proper support, these issues can become worse and jeopardize a person's individual well-being and future contributions to society. If you spend more time bonding with your family members and building strong relationships with them, you'll be far less susceptible to these negative mental health outcomes. When spending time with other family members, you can relax and de-stress. When engaging with other family members, you can build confidence and self-esteem, and of course, your family members will be there for you in your darkest moments. You know, that one almost needs some, some emphasis of its own. Think about what's happened over the last three years. I can honestly say some of the cruelest things that I have seen were the images or video of elderly people isolated, cut off from their families, you know, in the name of safety, you know, and we must obey the lockdown protocols. Reaching out toward the window, desperate for any kind of contact with anybody. And of course, being denied. No wonder there's so many mental health issues right now. And yeah, in those times when you're the one who's struggling, you know, what a blessing when you have family members you can turn to to help bear you up. Again, it's almost like there's a purpose behind this, almost like it was created for that reason. Anyway, last but not least, preservation of family values. It's also important to note that the only way to preserve family values from a broad cultural standpoint is to live and embody those values in your own life. Larry Alton says, if you teach your kids that family is important, they're much more likely to grow up with those values, carrying them forward to the next generation. If you're worried about the degradation of family values or the future of this country from an economic, cultural, or philosophic standpoint, it's an act of solidarity and selflessness to build a strong family of your own. Now, he says, none of this is meant to suggest that having a family is the only way to be happy or that family values are the most important aspect of American culture. Instead, it's merely meant to describe where families fit with our country in its current state and encourage more people to participate in families of their own. Now, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know that I often talk about there are at least seven key institutions in society. Family is one of those institutions. Government, business, academia, media, community, and clergy are among the others. 
Family, I think, is the one that can stand on its own in the absence of the others. And again, I I see divine purpose and design in, in why that's the case. So I'm not encouraging you, you know, now find religion. I'm encouraging you, take advantage of what you have in terms of institutions right there under your nose. Strengthen those family bonds. Do what you can to to set aside differences or clear the air or forgive one another, you know, and, and build those family bonds. There are a lot of things going on around us that uh, could become very challenging very quickly. People who have a strong family structure with, within which they can operate, I think are going to stand a much better chance of weathering the storm than those who don't. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Hey, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, it's a very simple matter of going to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on show notes any day. Down at the bottom of the page, you're going to find a subscribe button, and you can take it from there if you choose to. Why would you want to subscribe? Do you really want annoying emails from me? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm not going to spam you with annoying emails, but I will send you my daily show notes, which I assemble each and every day that I do the show. And it just consists of, I don't know, five, maybe sometimes six articles that uh, that I think are, are relevant or revealing or that can shed light or give encouragement or maybe teach a useful skill for times such as uh, as these. You don't have to believe them. But there are some marvelous voices out there offering some tremendous insights. And my goal as a commentator is to find and, and connect as many people as possible with those trusted voices. And I, I, like to, I like to pick sources that, you know, have timely, incredible information. So if that's something that interests you, if it's something you think, yeah, I could use that, maybe consider subscribing. Again, thebrianhydeshow.com. So practical skills are a good thing to have. And believe it or not, philosophy actually counts as a practical skill, especially when you are living in times of confusion and disinformation. Got a great article here from intellectualtakeout.org. This is from Alethea Hitz and why we should study philosophy. Now, I know a lot of people turn their noses up, oh, philosophy? You get a degree in philosophy and the only words you're going to use are, would you like fries with that? Oh, I've heard all the jokes too, and yet... Actually, after having studied philosophy, as in, you know, the classical liberal arts tradition, I can say that uh, it really changes you as a person. Not because you start wearing, you know, suede jackets with, uh, or, uh, you know, uh, sorry, corduroy jackets with suede patches on the elbow and, you know, reading glasses perched on the end of your nose and a pipe sticking out of the corner of your mouth. Yes, I'm a philosopher and I'm opining on things of philosophy, blah, 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 blah. It's not going to make you snooty. But it will give you great insight into human nature, which with everything that's changed around us, all the technology, all the developments, all the challenges and triumphs and trials, human nature is still very much the same as it's always been. You don't learn that until you start to really see the minds of people who studied these things out and thought about these things for the last 3,000 years or so. That's At least that's what we have recorded. So Alethea Hitz says, 
When I tell people I'm in school for philosophy, they usually respond with one of two extremes, either admiration or ambivalence. Either they give me an impressed look, a shake of the head, and an odd comment like, I could never do that. Or they give me a pair of raised eyebrows, a polite nod, and a swift transition to another topic. Many people, it seems, assume philosophers are impractical. What are you planning on doing with that degree? Or else, ridiculously intelligent. Kierkegaard is impossible to read. She says, throughout my studies in philosophy, I've realized that, to an extent, these assumptions are true. There's a danger in getting too caught up in the workings of the mind, and there's a unique challenge in exploring abstract questions. However, this doesn't mean philosophy is not helpful. Rather, the abstract reasoning involved in philosophy can help us live better lives. Now, obviously not everyone can study philosophy as a degree, but we can and should all study it by reading on the topic and learning from the world's finest. And she gives some reasons why. Number one, philosophy provides strong role models. So she says, when I first read Crito, this is Plato's work, the short work depicting Socrates only a few days before his execution, she says, I was stunned. In just a few thousand words, Plato showcases Socrates' tenacious intellect, forgiving demeanor, and remarkable calmness in the face of death. Even when offered a sly escape from his impending execution, Socrates declines, saying that such an act would undermine governmental power and thus harm his fellow citizens. In the increasing corruption of contemporary society, we all need good role models. And while we can certainly look to honorable men and women of the current era, the wisdom and examples of older generations are invaluable. Alethea Hitz says, Throughout my study in philosophy, I've read from honorable and committed thinkers. Socrates comes most readily to mind, but other worthy examples include Thomas Aquinas, who wrote Summa Theologica, a remarkable treatise applying Aristotle's philosophy to the teaching of the Church of Rome. Roger Scruton, who thought seriously about aesthetics amid a culture that seemed to ignore it. And Jonathan Edwards, who adamantly refused to divorce his thinking from his living. She says, certainly many men and women, rather, who have populated earlier generations of thought are worthy of being studied, honored, and remembered. Well, philosophy enables us to do so. Secondly, philosophy expands our ability for complex thought. Philosophy often provides a unique mental exercise. It requires us to closely follow an argument, understand the logical connections between ideas, and hold a number of propositions steadily in our minds. Doing each of these can grow our ability to think well. Metaphorically, at least, our brains are muscles, meaning they get stronger as we exercise them. And, of course, the ability to think well is useful in many areas of society, including choosing who to vote for, uh, working through religious beliefs, or discerning the pros and cons of sending our kids to a public school. Even when philosophy doesn't seem to offer immediate or practical fruits, studying it can encourage the skills necessary for other parts of life. Philosophy strengthens our minds, and it helps us to think critically. She's right, by the way. I was kind of a budding critical thinker before I really took seriously the idea of taking a deep dive into philosophy and self-education. But once I did, it, uh, it affected me in ways that I hadn't considered, mainly helped me to order my own thinking in such a way that it became easier to, to sift fact from fiction or to ask the right questions to get a more fully rounded or complete answer or perspective on the, the problem or the situation at hand. It's not about being the smartest person in the room. 
It's about knowing how to get to the truth. And that's something that, uh, sadly, our, our public schools do not teach this. Number three, she says, philosophy gives us categories to view the world with. Some ideas require labels to be understood. For instance, a child may not know the difference between a plum and a nectarine if they've never heard it clearly explained. Often, not having a word for a thing or a set of words to distinguish between things of the same kind means not understanding the thing itself. In philosophy, we encounter categories like the words plum and nectarine that help us recognize distinctions in our world. And this is important because two things can appear similar yet prove dangerously different. For example, imagine that we have both a plum and a nectarine in our kitchen pantry. Imagine, too, that the plum is still ripe, but the nectarine is beginning to rot inside. Certainly, we'd want to ensure that our children knew the difference before we told them to go grab a plum as a snack. Now, in the same way, philosophy can help us distinguish between ostensibly similar things, giving us examples with which to wisely and safely navigate our world. For example, she says, Aristotle's view of ethics has influenced my thinking on what kind of virtue I want to foster in my life. Alethea Hitz says, we ought to reclaim this ancient, time-tested discipline, using it to educate our children, strengthen our morals, and deepen our intellectual lives. Now, I'm guessing the, the number one objection most people are going to have to hearing this is, well, who has time to sit and read old books? And I'll grant you, I don't have enough time to do all the stuff that I've committed to do. And part of that's a that's a extension of me, uh, well, it's me overextending myself. It's me, you know, agreeing to do too many things. Do I regret it? Uh, kind of, sometimes. At the same time, it moves me out of my comfort zone. It gets me involved in things. Can I confess something to you? I, don't, I won't tell this to everybody, but uh, I'm, uh, I'm participating in a musical production. Titanic, the musical. Look, I don't sing. I don't dance. I used to act in college, and I wasn't a good actor, to put it mildly. But I've been persuaded to come out of my shell. And so um, I'm spending two and a half to three hours a night, four nights a week, rehearsing, learning songs, learning lines, and uh, we'll be participating in a, in a production of Titanic, the musical. So when I tell you I'm way outside of my comfort zone by doing this, I'm really out there. I mean, it's, it, it's painful. You know, it's, it's very hard to make mistakes, but it's even harder to make mistakes in front of other people. And just and be okay with making those mistakes. And when I hit a when I hit a note correctly, I feel really good. But I don't do it very often. Okay, I'm still very much in that that awkward learning stage. But I have to say that it's even even through the discomfort. This is quickly becoming one of the most positive and and empowering things that I've done in a long time. I'm a little bit ashamed that I've stayed in my shell for this long. Just, you know, by, by not participating. Oh, I'll leave that to people who really want to do it. I, I don't have an affinity for musical theater, but by gosh, I'm going to give it the old college try. I know you don't hide. Yeah. Not having an affinity for musical theater. Come on, buddy. We've seen the way you walk. <laughs> no, I, uh, I'm really grateful for the opportunity. In fact, the friend who introduced me to this opportunity asked me last night, do you hate me? <laughs> My answer is no, but it just kind of reinforces, like most things, the best stuff in life tends to happen outside of the comfort zone. I don't like to venture out of the comfort zone. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. This is our final segment here. Three articles I want to touch on here very quickly. First of all, uh, last year's Supreme Court uh, Bruin decision, which uh, really strengthened, you know, the uh, the understanding that, yeah, your right to keep and bear arms is not only an individual right, but there's a lot of states that uh, that don't have a leg to stand on, and uh, they're, they're scrambling. How do we handle it? You know, basically, the Supreme Court acknowledged that inalienable right to keep and bear arms in a way that has made it very difficult for more gun control to be enacted. Now, it hasn't stopped. You know, the president talking about, I'm going to get an assault weapon ban. We're going to do it, by gosh. You AR-15 people. But uh, it's interesting to me that uh, the right to keep and bear arms, on the one hand, is on fairly solid ground, but then along comes the ATF. And with a simple rule change, Law-abiding citizens face being transformed into criminals overnight. John Clark, writing for AmericanThinker.org, I'm sorry, .com, AmericanThinker.com, says, After years of flip-flopping, the ATF has issued a rule recharacterizing guns with pistol braces, making millions of currently owned guns subject to federal short-barrel rifle registration. In other words, they become NFA items, subject to a $200 tax. Now, the effect of this rule change is particularly potent in, uh, in Connecticut, where existing laws banning so-called assault rifles are immediately triggered. Owners there of handguns with pistol braces cannot merely remove the brace if the weapon has a forward pistol grip or a second hand grip. These guns are effectively rendered instantly illegal due to the fickle federal rule change. By the way, since when does the ATF have the ability to, to make law? Or are these just bureaucratic rules enforced as if law? If so, that's, that's a problem. They're not a lawmaking body, but they're acting as if they are. Now, prior to the rule change, Connecticut gun owners could legally own pistols with braces that possessed features otherwise prohibited by Connecticut's 2013 ban on assault weapons. Generally called others, these in-between guns were classified as illegal handguns with the barrel too long, not specifically banned under the state's definition of assault weapons, barrel under 16 inches exclusive of pistol brace. But they were long enough when fitted with the brace, which acts as a butt extension, to evade federal classification as short-barreled rifles under the former ATF determination. The state of Connecticut classified them per federal rules as legally permissible but not prohibited short-barrel rifles. So with the ATF rule, Connecticut others gun owners will now overnight find themselves in possession of of illegal assault weapons. Connecticut's assault weapon ban punishes illegal possession of an assault weapon as a Class D felony, subject to up to five years in prison and a $5,500 fine with a mandatory minimum one-year prison term. That penalty is reduced to a Class A misdemeanor with up to one year in prison if the violator can prove that he or she lawfully possessed the weapon before the ban. Now, there are an estimated 81,849 pre-ban legal weapon owners in Connecticut who retained their otherwise prohibited weapons following that state's ban by registering them. By the way, bad move, guys. Bad move. Last year, Governor Ned Lamont publicly proposed making those guns illegal also. Why not? He knows who has them. That's why you don't register them. 
it is to be presumed he will pounce on the chance to ban the in-between others. Now, the anticipated retroactive prohibition by the ATF rule change in possession of what was a legal weapon in Connecticut may be alleged to be an ex post facto law prohibited by the U.S. Constitution. But this defense likely won't fly. Presuming the state of Connecticut seeks to incorporate the others as illegal assault weapons under its existing statute, it will charge people with crimes not for having owned the guns before the rule change, which would be ex post facto, meaning from a thing done afterward, but for the ongoing current offense of possessing the gun presently in violation of existing law. Connecticut others thus owned others owners rather thus would not face prosecution for pre-ATF rule change violations, but would have to dispose of or surrender their guns in order to avoid criminal liability for a new offense that springs up with this controversial rule change. That's the rub. The others, unlike owners of unregistered and thus illegal pre-ban assault weapons, are registered. Remember, Connecticut implemented a post-Sandy Hook registry of the others, which it conceivably begin to investigate and compare with guns surrendered or bought from them should the state implement such a policy in order to sidestep unconstitutional taking violations. Connecticut would <clears throat> be able to prosecute those possessions as Class A misdemeanors. And it's hard to imagine that prosecutors could successfully apply the pre-ATF rule change five-year felony penalty. So Connecticut gun owners these days of other guns find themselves in a panicked squeeze between the scylla of federal rulemaking and the charbitus of a state bent on banning their guns without mercy. If they register their weapons with the feds and pay the $200 fee, they're not free of the rocky perils of criminal of, of Connecticut criminal statutes that ban them as short barrels. And if they simply remove the pistol brace, as many other states are free to do, they cannot legally possess what remains under Connecticut law because of a non-detachable pistol grip or second-hand grip. So, Joe Biden and Ned Lamont will doubtless clink champagne glasses at this predicament. Law-abiding Connecticut citizens transformed into criminals overnight by the sweep of a bureaucratic pen are not celebrating the loss of their property and liberty. All right, I'm going to get radical here for just a second. As long as your behavior is peaceful. It is none of the state's business what you own. It's none of its business what's in your pocket. It's none of its business what's in your gun safe. None. So take that as you will. But I know there, the ATF at one point was saying, well, I'll tell you what, you know, for those of you who have pistol braces, if you'll just register with us, and we're talking fingerprints and the whole nine yards, we'll even waive the $200 tax stamp so that you can have your rifle legally, you know, under, you know, under the federal regulations. But as someone pointed out, before you bend the knee to kiss the boots, consider you're, you're admitting, first of all, you're admitting, yes, you have authority over me and over my guns, but you're also, again, registering what you have with a federal agency by bending the knee to get the free, air quotes, st stamp from them. Look, I, I'm encouraging you, be a peaceful, utterly determined defender of your rights, all of them. Sometimes what that means is mass disobedience. Just like Prohibition showed, there comes a point where all the laws and the rules and regulations, if they are ill-conceived, and this is a very ill-conceived kind of rule or law, they just can't be enforced. 
So exercise discretion. You got to, you know, sort this out with your own conscience. But in my opinion, a person would have to be a fool to register anything that they have with any level of government. By the way, 3D printers are a pretty cool thing. 80% finished lowers, another very cool thing. The only thing you have to work on there is just discretion. Whether or not to brag about it or post pictures on social media. Again, my advice is don't. Okay, two other quick articles. George Ford Smith has a great article about how political salvation is slow suicide. Look, the, the, the people and the systems that try to rule us work very hard to convince us that we alone have what it takes to fix your inadequacies. But when someone points out, no, they don't, or there are better ways to, to address whatever we feel are our inadequacies, those other, those other six institutions of society that I've mentioned before, that makes you an enemy to the, systems that's try, the system that's trying to rule you. And they get angry. And worst of all, they have people with a bad case of Stockholm Syndrome who will sit there and defend to the death. Oh, yes, that system is good. How dare you try to escape? Crabs in a bucket. Anyway, it's a great article. You'll find it in today's show notes. Also, Paul Craig Roberts has an excellent article on the death of independent medicine and fair trials. This is not an easy one to read because it will it will demonstrate that what we've seen over the last three years is that medical tyranny is not just some dystopian conspiracy theory. It's a reality. And, you know, doctors who prescribed ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine are being taken after by medical boards and sometimes, you know, state medical boards because, well, they defied the conventional wisdom. Few people think to ask, though, did the conventional wisdom work? Or did these doctors actually do any harm? If they just simply didn't click their heels and obey the dictates of, you know, this or that organization, did they harm somebody? And if the answer is, well, no, they didn't harm anybody. They just, they just bucked the official medical establishment narrative. See, I think the reason that some of these doctors are being gone after right now is, well, they, they undermine trust in the medical establishment. Oh, brother. You know what undermined trust in the medical establishment? TikTok videos of dancing nurses and doctors and absolute medical tyranny and experts telling us that uh, our lives were in their hands and locking us down from everything that mattered to us. Oh, and lying to us. They did that too. This is The Brian Hyde Show.